everyone. Uh, welcome to our session on uh, care coordination. And um, so what we will do is each of us will introduce ourselves more in depth um, when we do our little part. So we are a panel of three, um, Glenn Masuda, myself, Trang Huang, and Yvonne Sun. And each of us will cover a particular age group um, in uh, content. But um, what I'd like to do is sort of give you a little bit of history of how we got to this session. Um, so this is um, sponsored by the Department of Mental Health and UCLA, the training team. And we've been collaborating um, with the team over the course of this fiscal year uh, to um, plan out a whole series of training for content that is specifically focused on AAPI communities in LA County. And specifically, we understand about the FSP specific work because it is part of this FSP um, uh, capacity building um, um, effort. So uh, we want to clarify a little bit from your um, from your description of this session. It indicated that it's targeted specifically with homelessness, um, but we wanted to clarify that we actually are targeting much more the immigrant communities, um, specifically AAPI immigrant communities across children, adult, and older adult age groups. And um, the series has already had a number of sessions, several sessions before this, and they were um, recorded. So please, if you miss any of the previous sessions, we recommend that you contact um, the, the UCLA training team and they will um, link you to the videos. So there's been sessions on historical trauma and empathy for the AAPI communities, um, outreach and engagement, crisis assessment, addiction, uh, special issues um, with AAPI families. Um, our session here is gonna be on care coordination on specific uh, issues and needs around collaboration and treatment planning and coordination within the county. Um, and then their upcoming sessions will be focusing on impact of human trafficking and some of the services South Asian diversity among the South Asian communities, faith-based collaboration, and also legal issues and resources in um, AAPI communities. So after our session, you'll still have a few more really exciting um, content coming up. Okay. All right. Before uh, I turn it over to Glenn, I'd like to um, sort of acknowledge um, our space. So we are grateful for this opportunity to be here to share with you our work experience. Each of us has work experience in the age group that we work with. And so we're very appreciative of um, DMH and UCLA for collaborating with us, acknowledging and recognizing the needs to really look at special issues for AAPI communities and clients in LA County. Um, this is our session. We are creating a space for learning and our approach is cultural humility. So we, we approach any of our content with the lens of, we've worked a long time, but we are still here to learn. And we're open um, to constantly learn from our clients, from our staff, from all of you. Um, so in that spirit, we'd like to kind of 
remind all of us about the diversity in our group. I mean, I just kind of even just looking at the names, I'm already thinking diversity. And um, we want to acknowledge the need for inclusion if there are times during the session that we inadvertently offend anyone, please uh, note that we, um, we want to own that um, upfront and we ask that you let us know if um, we made a comment that um, you think, oh, wait a minute, I'd like to clarify that. Please you just use the chat space and then we wanna make sure we honor and respect your diversity and make sure that you feel inc inclusive. And we also ask you for the same. We ask for your sensitivity and recognize of the diverse uh, recognition of the diversity within our group so that we can have a really productive um, workspace. So we'd like to launch, send over to Glenn. Good afternoon again. And first of all, thank you for your time and the commitment you have for coming in and participating. Uh, the usual, I'm going to, I'm going to do this as fast as I can and, and, uh, trying, I have a clock in front of me, so I'm going to keep watching as I'm going here just to do the quick, who am I third generation Asian American of Japanese ancestry and, um, clinical psychologist, uh, currently the cl senior clinical director of Asian Pacific family center. It's the division of Pacific clinics in Rosemead, California, community mental health agency seeing primarily low-income, non-English uh, capable lim or limited English-speaking clients seeking mental health services. And uh, let me give you a description real quickly to go through that. All right, so to begin with, we do our standard, uh, we do our standard types of services in terms of individual group, family, psychotherapy, treatment services. We also have FSP services, prevention services, medication support, and of course, the case management services. That I believe most people are familiar with. And our staff are made up of a large cross-section, not just uh, the usual social work MFTs, but also nurses, practitioners, nurse practitioners, psychologists, MFTs, psychiatrists, case managers, family specialists, youth specialists. These are our prevention folks, along with a support staff, support services, and our peer partners who are consumers, clients that are also now working with us and have uh, bring in with them the... Uh, lived experience, language capability. We have two primary sites, one in Rosemead and our staff, including uh, our uh, support staff, especially our support staff, our Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, Cambodian, Taiwanese, English speaking. In our east side, we have predominantly Mandarin, Korean, and are now our Spanish speaking staff, as well as English speaking staff on our site. Um, and this one issue is already step number one in terms of care, uh, co uh, coordination of care services. We typically have a uh, hotline which uh, potential clients can call. That's the 800 number you can call. It's called PC Cares. The challenge is we're one of two programs that cannot use it because they cannot have all the language coverages. Uh, we also have an Armenian speaking program in our system that um, that is uh, help, um, troubled by the fact that they cannot use our primary services. We have to answer everything, including walk-ins, et cetera. Uh, sorry for the redundancy, aside from the usual assessments, psychological testing, individual group, family psychotherapy, parenting education services are provided at, at, at our center, but also in the field, in schools and telehealth, medication support services, prevention services, and that's what I want to talk about in depth, are uh, provided there. In terms of the types of clients' age range, although the children, family, and youth are only about 25% of sheer numbers, 
compared to adult and older adult services, uh, they make up about half of our building activity because of the intensity of children's services and the fact that we don't just work with the child, but also with the families. They also receive services that are very heavily case management and parent education uh, oriented. Within the children's program, you'll see it's a heavy representation in the 11 to 20, a uh, good number from six to 10, and we also have zero to five. Gender distribution of our children in youth cases are more female than male, which is the reverse of what we see in our adults. Types of services that are off, the treatment issues that come up are depressive disorders in descending order, anxiety disorders, disruptive disorders, neurodevelopmental disorders and or issues, trauma and stress related and psychotic spectrum disorders. Typically have been, and this is my first point, these our primary referral in their schools, obviously, DCFS, another ally, probation folks, law enforcement, faith-based organizations. And when I say peers, I'm very proud of the fact that a good percentage of our folks come in because they were told to come in by friends, family, uh, neighbors, uh, people they know. I said, you should go here. They've helped us out. You're going to see a pattern here. Why are they coming in by the referrals? A uh, general category of concerns for any mental illness that is going on in the families. There are developmental disabilities, their description, that schools often have concerns about because it may impact behavior and management issues. Substance use is suspected in some cases. Oftentimes they're referred by DCFS or juvenile justice, or they're told you need to go into parenting classes. The significance of this is what are some of the reasons why people are reluctant to come in? Same issues. The challenge is that stigma is still the king of challenges here. People do not want to talk about mental illness. I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir for most of you, so you know most of this already. Families do not want to acknowledge or talk about any developmental or neurodivergent disabilities. Substance use is something that rarely anybody wants to even acknowledge or talk about. Uh, there's some interesting issues around even identifying the substance use issues in a given API family. Because uh, if you look at the research that's out there, depending on who you talk to, how you collect the data, either we have a huge problem or we don't have a problem, and not a lot of the data is definitive so far. It also varies by area and population. Uh, DCFS, or juvenile justice intervention, is already a huge stigma. Not uncommon for a family or a parent to say to come in and says, I need to have 10 sessions of therapy, and then I can go back and have you sign this paper and they'll give me my kids back or my kids will go back into school or whatnot. Uh, huge embarrassment over a parenting class referral, depend, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, parents are frankly upset and miffed and insulted that they're being told that they're not a good parent. And we have to kind of do a lot of psychoeducation about that, some of the cross-cultural issues, the culture clashes and conflicts. And, uh, Oftentimes we're asked, so is it culture or is it pathological behavior? And we have to explain to them, sometimes it's an interesting interface of the two. And we have to ne negotiate that and navigate that by providing the kind of education the parents need without disrespecting the culture of origin or making attributions that it's a bad country involvement or it's because we're in America, that's why the problems are there. There is a fear of bad blood and the fear is really based on the notion that too often, the moms are blamed for having a bad seed, and this is why it's happening, or they're a bad parent to begin with. 
Um, just being referred for any services is hugely embarrassing. And for a number of our uh, clients, there's an issue of scheduling of services and transportation. Getting into how the referrals and, and the coordination care starts at the point of referral. This is a great referral from a really wonderful school district. Um, the person calling says, we are concerned about the culture of stress was experienced by this newly immigrated family, their limited English fluency, with the child inappropriately acting as an interpreter for the adults. They are also badly in need of public assistance and other services. We're looking for a challenge, a language capable therapist to assess for possible depression, anxiety in the child, in the child with some parenting education for mom and dad, and I'm glad they included dad in this picture, and case management services for the family as a whole. We would also very much appreciate your consultation and a possible IEP evaluation for the child. Um, this used to never happen. <laughs> I'm so glad it's, to report that it's happening with greater frequency and uh, a greater sense of sophistication with respect to not just the child need, family needs, linguistically and cultural needs, but we still get this type of referral, the not so great referral. Hey, we got this child is not doing well academically. They're doing poorly. The child is disruptive and disrespectful to authority figures. This is kind of unusual for what we know of Asian students. We're not sure why that happens. He appears to be Chinese. The last name is Chang, actually it was Chang and it was Korean. And we need you to clear the child to ensure that he is appropriate to attend classes. This is 2022. I used to hear this back in 86. And the sad reality is I'm still hearing this depending on what district is coming from. Um, again, the coordination of care starts at the referral process. Okay. When the referral is made, it, we often emphasize to not just the school or the probation or the DCFS, in our case, DCFS, because it's typically the Asian unit, uh, it's already understood, but we have to assess what is the actual language of emotional expression in the family. There may be multiple dialects spoken. It's uh, common that one is the one used to communicate with each other is not the one that everyone has fluency in. Not uncommon for a mom to be Mandarin fluent, dad to be Cantonese fluent, and they only understand uh, a third dialect and they use a third dialect to communicate with the child. Child has limited fluency in there too. So the notion of, oh, they speak Chinese is already bad enough. But then when someone says, we think they speak Cantonese and no one's ever taken the time to assess uh, the levels, even with our Vietnamese speaking folks, uh, when we notice that speaks one person speaks one dialect from the North, one speaks from dialect from the South, we're already thinking about, I wonder what the family dynamics are about. So even the actual language being spoken can give us a lot of information from the outset. A common uh, misunderstanding that we get referrals for is when people say, oh, the child speaks English. And so you should have no problems. And it's the same thing. Uh, parents may not, and they may not be fluent enough to communicate in English, at least not in a therapeutic context. It is also not appropriate to have a child in the family be the interpreter for the services. Uh, this has happened on multiple occasions when we're not working with uh, probation officers or DCFS caseworkers that are familiar. We have often found uh, that we need to refer them to a special unit. Um, having a probation child be the interpreter for the mom and dad to the probation officer was something we ran into and periodically still run into. And it's inappropriate because we're basically putting pressure not only on the child, but we're assuming the child's telling the truth. We're also uh, 
reminding folks that a family may speak a given language, but they may not be literate in the language spoken at home, or they may be even given a form of the uh, information. It's not unusual for some entities to have given um, a parent or family a form in Chinese that is done in uh, modern or simplified when they really can only fluently read something in traditional. Our allies in treatment are the same community partners that have made the referrals. Collaboration with the allied professionals is critical. Warm handoffs are critical to successful referral. And what I mean by a warm handoff is uh, we really have the most success when we work with schools, probation, or others who we actually are on the phone when the referral is made and we're being introduced to the person and more like lately uh, online through telehealth. Um, Lord only knows how many times a parent is told in English to call us for services and they never call or they're told this is the person to call. We, we would at least prefer that the individual families are given a name of a contact person at the agency more, more, more important or just as effective and so and so will be calling you and then we'll be touching base with you as well. Um, the ideal, of course, is at the time of referral, we're actually sitting in a room there for an actual face-to-face -face con contact and engaging in some outreach. Commun continued collaborative work with the allied professional is, a ne is necessary for successful treatment process. I'm gonna give some examples as to why and how that manifests. Um, there are also additional strategies for hope. Uh, we don't just do the standard treatment you know, uh, protocols. We also involve cultural events, family cooking night and game night. We have families that don't eat together, don't cook together, have never played a board game together. We celebrate cultural events and holidays together and make each one a, uh, a fun experience, which is also validating for the family members and the kids get to see their parents in a positive and competent light. We even do movie nights with our prevention programs with a lesson plan. Uh, some of you may know movies that are th uh, things like uh, Inside Out or Coco or most recently uh, um, a number of Disney and other companies have done these. We like to get the ones that have not just that fun movie for the kids to watch, but sometimes even done as a parenting education plan where they see the one that's been published in Blu-ray in Malaysia that has a Mandarin, Cantonese, Vietnamese uh, soundtrack and or subtitles. Uh, last point there here is always consult. I am never unhappy to talk to someone who says, I have a situation I haven't seen before. There's really not a dumb question there. I, I would much rather people ask me those questions ahead of time than rather than after the crisis has uh, happened again. Uh, I'm gonna zip through this section. Parenting education is done in threshold languages. Uh, we also had education programs for newly immigrated families. We do this in our prevention programs. Substance abuse prevention is also important for education. Uh, I, over and over, I keep hearing about mom and dad don't realize that that gigantic bottle of Tylenol in the bathroom is quickly disappearing. Gang violence prevention, we do not look at any program we do there as anti-gang because the kids in gangs are involved in uh, extra legal activities, as they say. There are kids too. And we need to figure out a way to provide them with some divergence away from the criminal activity. Let me get to some quick examples of what we mean by uh, the proper assessment, history taking, and so forth. Just quickly, rapid fire. There was a there was a child who was about ten years of age and uh, very bright. 
but the staff noticed that this kid is constantly drooling and slurping and wiping his face off and we didn't understand it the intern said to me there's nothing in his report that says he has any kind of neurological problems but it is something not right and yet he's so bright we had to keep asking the parent and she said there's nothing wrong with him and um I asked him to take a deeper dive into the record and check with the school district and found out that there not only had this child formerly been an IEP uh, in the IEP assessment when he was very young, it said, quoting mother, oh, yeah, after he fell on his head from the second story from the stairs, he, he was kind of stupid. And to her horror, uh, the child was understandably assessed for and was placed into special ed, which he actually was able to phase out of fairly quickly because he was such a bright student with great compensatory skills. But from that point on, mother swore to never acknowledge that history again because of her fear of her son being thrown back into um, special ed. Uh, second example is what made this kid attack the honor students? Oops, we had a student who was identified as having a developmental disability at the time, and he was a little slow, but still a bright kid. And he basically attacked a bunch of honor students that were standing on the podium, and he almost knocked them off a, a second story balcony. And he was being um, assessed to see maybe he's a danger to others and perhaps he uh, is not appropriate for this blue ribbon gold medal school. And what the, um, what the teacher said was he was such a nice kid, we don't understand what happened. And doing an appropriate assessment also asked him about not just how's he doing, but also how's his family doing, how's his mother doing, how's his little sister doing. And this young man did very embarrassedly said, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt anybody, but I just wanted to make them stop. And here again, I asked him, what are you talking about? And it was apparently, short, long story short, this honor student attacked, excuse me, this student attacked the honor students because he was tired of them grabbing his sister on her chest and her crotch. Basically, these honor students were sexually assaulting his younger sister. He was too embarrassed to tell anybody. His sister told him, don't say anything. And out of his own frustration, he ran and did something that he thought would protect his sister, trying to warn them. At the IEP we went to for him, I quietly mentioned, yeah, we're going to make sure that he doesn't engage in any uh, offensive behaviors. We're expecting that anytime something like that happens with sister again, that he will, of course, talk to the school officials, because this had happened like the day before. The school officials were mortified and realized that they had there was information they were not aware of. I'm proud to say that individual graduated later from most improved student. The third example is again something that some, we run into oops, problems with. Did you do an adequate history taking? Do you have a good relationship with the foster parent? This was a very well meaning foster parent that didn't have language capability for the three girls that were in her custody. But she kept hammering the poor DCFS caseworker that these girls must clearly have been victims of sexual abuse because they keep touching themselves in their private parts. And it took a very, very patient clinical social worker to ask the young girls, when you do your personal hygiene in the bathroom and the toilet, how do you do it? and realized that because of the neglectful environment they had been in, no one had ever addressed it. The foster mom was embarrassed to talk about it. The kids were embarrassed to talk about it. Um, the well-meaning foster mom thought, oh, well, um, you know, Asians are 
are hesitant to talk about these private matters, so I'm not going to go there. And we had to do a lot of permission giving, a lot of uh, um, gentle reminders to help teach these girls some hygiene so that they didn't have the itching problem that they were suffering from. The last one uh, is another example of, thank God we had case managers and therapists who worked very closely with a family that had a very medically fragile child. The child passed away, but because of a, an inability to communicate with local community resources, there was a demand that uh, DCFS do something and DCFS was being pressured to remove the other surviving children and take them from the parent. When in fact, they had been working so hard to help the child go through their available treatment services. Thankfully, again, because of great relationships between the different allied uh, groupings, they were able to uh, bring the children back in. Um, some success stories. I get some really interesting ones and really uh, heartfelt uh, answers and responses. The teachers at school have stopped complaining was one success story according to a parent. One parent from parenting classes said, I learned that I need to be better at listening to my kids. And I love the fact when law enforcement says, can you do something before they became, become our business? Can you work with us? Because if you don't, they're gonna be uh, our business very soon. Um, the near future, there are so many emotional stressors that we are still seeing in all of our families. The loss of family members themselves, support systems, the loss of a sense of safety and stability. Economic stressors are continuing. The racial conflicts that were there long before and the violence that was happening before. These are all issues that were amplified because of, there was a panic buying of guns by a lot of our own a lot of family members in the community. They didn't say so much that they needed to protect their families. They were saying, I can't find ammunition anywhere. Do you know where I can get some? And that's worrying for a future. Uh, continuing strategies I've mentioned already. Anything else you wanted to add? Uh, only that uh, our biggest challenge right now is workforce shortage. You know, we, we have the, the number of cases coming in, the parents and families and the referrals from the schools has not stopped. We just don't have enough staff at this time. That's another pandemic amplified issue. There was always a workforce shortage of bilingual, bicultural, clinically capable uh, staff that can work with the different age groups. And uh, that's gotten worse. So I don't, I don't wanna do a pitch for a re recruiting because I think all of us are doing the same thing anyway. <laughs> Heck, I'm even going into the high schools um, to even talk about it. And in fact, one time we went into one of the high schools because of the tragedy of a, of a relative killing his two nephews in a situation in the high school. When I went there to do a crisis intervention, we realized a lot of our work was actually for the teachers because they were upset and they were concerned. They didn't know what to do and say. The kids actually formed their own little network and were taken care of and celebrating the life of the two decedent kids that were, were murdered by their uncle. And the interesting irony was one was the kids would come up to me and ask me, hey, I didn't know Asians were mental health professionals because they would look at the three of us and think, oh, my God, you guys do that, too. So there's something about us as a field that people don't recognize. It was surprising to them and they wanted to know what, what does it take and what is it like to be a social work psychologist, et cetera. And the other thing was when I sat down with a panel of people who were the response team, there was, a, there was a young woman looking at me and staring at me from across the table. And after the meeting ended, she ran up to me and she said, oh my God, you have the same mustache. 
And it turns out that the young woman who is now the school psychologist at that particular school was someone I worked with when she was in middle school. And I looked at her and I looked at her name badge and I went, oh yeah, you cussed out the principal in front of the teacher and were mad at your mother. And she and her, her comment was, oh my God, you remember that? I, said, I, I couldn't forget you. So glad you've developed into this wonderful professional helping out. So, um, My name is Trang Huang. Uh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, also a adjunct faculty in social work. Um, I used to run the SSG Alliance division at uh, SSG, and I've retired from there. So um, I am now part-time with SSG doing some training and advocacy. But um, today, my conversation with you is really based on my 20-plus years of working with the Alliance. So I see some of our folks here, and uh, I may call on you if I have time, because I, some of the folks who are here, you have very good experience in the field, just like I do. Um, so our experience is very much with FSP, Full Service Partnership. So that's where I'm going to be um, speaking from. The way we envision this presentation is we use cases. So I'm using cases uh, from my work in the adult program to share with you some of the nuances and the needs of the AAPI communities and the, and the client populations. Um, and, the, and, and the cases are really not just one single individual. It's an amalgam of different. Um, all right. So just know that it's just not that it's not one person, but it really I pull out some content from different um, individuals to give you a, a, a little bit of pictures of, of what the issues are. John Doe referred to us from Kedron Hospital. He was homeless and hospitalized for being gravely disabled. Um, after three weeks of medication, he still has psychotic symptoms, but cooperative and verbal. The staff doesn't know what language he speaks. They assume, they think it might be Vietnamese. So they called us um, because we have a, collaborator, a collaboration of multiple agencies providing um, FSP services for AAPIs. Um, and we have staffing from multiple agencies that cover the threshold languages and, and bilingual staff who are um, LPS designated. Um, so, uh, so for a case like this, it really highlights the issues of um, hospitals, IMDs, uh, jail um, linkage folks who have individuals who come from the street who are gravely disabled, who may not be able to tell them specifically what language. And with John Doe, they don't have a name, so they don't know the history of services. So they may not know well, really much more than how the client presents today. So even from the beginning, even from before we get the referral, some of the work already is collaboration with the referral source. So oftentimes we get a call and sometimes we get on the phone with the client and, and then we try to assess what language. We've had a referral once when the client, um, we were told the client speaks um, Thai and we sent a Thai staff the Thai speaking staff, and she arrived and she said, no, he's Laotian. So it sounds very similar. <laughs> so, um, so this is kind of, uh, we want to call your attention to when you get a referral, verify, or if you are giving the referral, just like Glenn was talking about, make sure you're clear and specific about what specific language. Don't just say Chinese speaking. There are myriads of Chinese dialects 
um, Fukien, Mandarin, Cantonese, various. Um, so it's helpful for the FSP team to know the specific language. Um, so for this case, he is, um, so he is Vietnamese. We, we spoke on the phone. And um, so I trooped along, go over there to see him. And um, the engagement and outreach is um, in the hospital. We, we feel the need that for FSP referrals, the, ref the engagement at, prior to enrollment is very key. And you probably heard about that from the engagement and outreach um, session. Um, so in this case, uh, I have to do extensive engagement and outreach in the hospital to verify he's Vietnamese, help the staff get some more details about his background and history, and then work with them on discharge planning, and then also post-discharge arrangement. Because once we accept him into the FSP, then we have to make arrangements for housing and ongoing care. So for this case, um, during outreach and engagement, I have to come in and identify appropriate needs, uh, language, culture, previous resources and connections. So I come in and he didn't recognize, he didn't, he didn't acknowledge me. He was just walking in, in the yard and completely ignores me. But I anticipated that. So I brought in some Vietnamese um, rice, sticky rice. And I shouted to him, I sort of sit in the corner and I said, I brought sticky rice. Would you like to share some? And so we use food and cultural connection as a way to engage. And something about food that is very primary, it really highlights and, and triggers dormant memories of self, right? We all have comfort food. Um, so if for FSP services, we often use all kinds of cultural connections to motivate, to connect to people. So in this case, food really did the trick. He sat down, had some rice, loved it, and started talking and letting me know of where he was. Um, we subsequently identified that he is actually a, an, um, a, a frequent flyer, if you will, <laughs> in our language. language. Um, he has been through the hospitals multiple times. He's been homeless. He's been referred through the FSP program multiple times as well. It's just because at the time when he was picked up by the police and brought into the hospital, he he didn't have his he didn't have any ID. He didn't have any um, identify identifier. Uh, but we subsequently figured it out. Uh, from our assessment to, to hear of his history, where were you? Not so much in 2005, that didn't, it didn't matter to him, but it was like, where were you before you came to the hospital? Which, which market did you hang out at? So the outreach and the way that we look at discharge planning. So in, in planning the discharge for this individual, I had to figure out where his normal haunt is, where he normally likes to be, and he wanted to be in Chinatown. So it's really important for us to look at the existing resources that these individuals have used before. In his case, the market, there's a particular market, Iwa market, right in Chinatown. You all know, some of you who are in LA, you know what I'm talking about. So he hangs out there and he talks about a wall that he normally parks himself. So these are the kinds of resources, location, network and support and case management needs that we identify even before discharge. 
Then we made plans for discharge and, um, and then ongoing service. So in his case, we proceeded to enroll him into our, um, into our FSP program and, um, and, and we um, discharged him from the hospital. So um, I won't go into much more details about subsequent um, happenings, but I just wanted to share the funny story with you about, so how, um, so on a day of discharge, I took him, I, we had made arrangements, I had described it in detail. Um, oh, sorry, backtrack, one more thing about resources. So one of the things that he agreed to discharge, one of the things that motiva motivated him to accept the, the our FSB program was we talked about his family in Vietnam. And he talked a little bit about his hometown, he described it, and 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 he indicated that he would like to reconnect to his family in Vietnam. So that was what made him agree to work with me. He said, if you would help me to find a way to connect, to write a letter, to find out where they are, okay, I will come to your FSP program. So this is that kind of out of the box thinking about thinking about resource and motivation. So I, I wanna highlight that to remind you that it's not just the today uh, situation of the client, right? It's also their history, their family that they've lost that is just as important as um, where they live. And you may offer really beautiful housing, but that didn't matter to him. Like I took pictures, I brought pictures of housing, talk about all the Vietnamese who are gonna be there, didn't matter. It was, are you gonna help me to connect? So that was a deciding factor. On the day of discharge, uh, again, I anticipated food. So I said, all right, let's drive to Chinatown and then we can pick up some food at your favorite little uh, sandwich shop. Um, so we went there and he was very excited and happy. Uh, we stopped, I was putting money in the meter. I turn around, he disappeared. He was back in his own in his old neighborhood. He's stable now. He's medicated. He's clean. He's got you know he, he's 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 what we call reconstituted, right? So he's organized. He has organized thinking. He's oriented times four. He knows where he is now, so he doesn't need me anymore. Took off. No matter where I went, couldn't find him. So as part of outreach, this ongoing service that we, we want to highlight is, so I went to Aihua Market and I told them, do you know this man? Described him. And they said, oh yeah, he hangs out here. He's a regular. I said, okay, if he resurfaced, could you call me? <laughs> and that's how I found him was I left the phone number with them. He resurfaced, uh, I think a day or two after, and they called me up and they say, hey, you were looking for him, he's here now. And so I troop right back out there and continue outreach and engagement. So I, I, I use that case just to highlight some of the really intricacies, some of the nuances of outreach and engagement with individuals that really take us a little bit uh, of that extra step. It isn't just business as usual. It really does require us to be creative and to really think about where the client is literally <laughs> physically located, uh, where the client is at. You know how you're taught in school, start where the client is at? Well, literally, sometimes we have to think about 
their immediate habitat, if you will, right? Remember ecological perspective, uh, when we think about where the client's habitat is, for this particular case, it was really important to figure out where he was in Chinatown and this, that was where he wanted to be. Okay, if you have any questions, please type in the chat. My, my friend um, Glenn is taking note and we'll answer later. Okay, um, moving on to case number two. This case highlights the need to coordinate with family, um, faith, um, you, you using the client's faith as part of the motivation support and also other treatment um, facilities. So Don is 50 years old, Chinese immigrant from Taiwan. He lived with his ex-wife before referral to the residential COD co-occurring dis disorder program for substance use and depression. With long-term alcohol use, he was, oh, sorry about that. He was able to maintain job until the pandemic loss. He identifies as strongly Christian and attends church virtually. In treatment, he attends groups and activities despite limited English and really not fully understanding, but he's engaged. His Mandarin speaking therapist collaborates with the treatment team weekly and responds for a psychiatric emergency. So um, full disclosure, I tweak some of the details a little bit in terms of different um, backgrounds just to maintain some confidentiality for the clients, okay? But this is a case where we really wanna highlight the need for collaboration and treatment. If somebody needs residential treatment and they don't necessarily have the Mandarin speaking or the Vietnamese or the Korean um, staffing, we as the FSP team has to come in and be a part of that treatment team. So. I want to do a shout out to the staff who did this case. Um, she was there and really just sticking with it. And there were so many complications with the what he does at the residential site. Multiple times they wanted him to leave because he was disruptive and there were multiple situations that call for emergencies. Um, there were also a couple of suicidal ideation and attempts and the staff had to constantly come and do the and do the assessment together with the residential treatment team. And it takes that level of engagement with the other team to really make it work so that ethically we're providing culturally competent, linguistically competent services for an individual who needs both the residential site and the connection to a primary language therapist. Um, so they've done, they um, had to do lots of different collaboration. And then the staff also coordinates between the family and the residential site treatment team. So that's also the link. So the FSP staff is the link for both of these entities as a way to ensure that when he leaves the residential site, he, he still has support from his ex-wife and his other extended family. They also, the staff also had to coordinate the virtual church connection for him because instead of going to church in his community, he now cannot attend church, but it's really important for him. So the staff also had to mobilize their um, connection and knowledge or did homework in terms of what church services is available in that language virtually for the client to be able to connect to his faith. And his faith was one of the motivator in his um, getting better, in his improvement and growth, okay? 
So that really highlight for us the placement into residential setting. They need ongoing collaboration, um, treatment planning, and lots of collaboration with family uh, using all kinds of motivational resources, and then also the use of faith in this um, particular case. Okay, last case, and um, Yvonne or Glenn, feel free to uh, do a three minute, five minute, you know, hand gesture to let me know if I'm running close. Okay, he is 24 years old, being released from jail into the FSP program under the MIS program, misdemeanor incompetent to stand trial. And that requires training for trial competency and monthly report. He experienced first psychotic episode, arrested for exposing in public and resisting arrest. Again, some of the details is a little bit tweaked for confidentiality. He's newly immigrant from Myanmar with some English. He lives with his mother and sister in Riverside before. So for this case, I picked so that we can have some thinking about special issues, immigration, uh, legal needs, and also a lot of community collaboration for individuals, both in terms of the language needs, as well as like multiple counties and um, some of these other areas. Okay, so in this case, uh, I want to call your attention to health and they have trained certified interpreters and translators. So in cases where really I have, I have to say, I would, I would, I'm proud to have, when I was at the Alliance, to have so many bilingual staff who were so competent, but we didn't have a Myanmar speaking therapist. <laughs> so when we get somebody like this, and we've had Indonesian, we've had somebody who speaks Urdu, when we have somebody whom we don't have capacity, it's our responsibility to find some support and serve and, and, and from the community in order to make sure that the assessment is fully cap is fully um, uh, uh, is fully available for the individual. So we use um, so you can use Pals for Health for assessment. Um, so so it 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 ensures that assessment is responsive and allowing the individual really indicate his full story. Because part of, if you think about incompetence to stand trial, if one does not speak English very well or very little, then the, when, we're, when we're dealing with a situation that's very stressful in the crisis, I may come across as being very incompetent to stand trial because I don't know how to, I don't know what a judge is in English, right? Um, so especially for cases where we need to have a full, clear understanding of what the client's mental status is, is when we want to call your attention to make sure you have good translation services. And like Glenn said, not somebody who's a family member, not somebody who's right a neighbor, um, it's really important for us to be ethical. Okay, um, in this case, uh, we he was enrolled in our program, but we have to think about how do we coordinate with his family who's in Riverside, they're cross county. So already in, think, in thinking about discharge planning or in terms of transitioning him to after he completes the MIS program, we have to think about how we collaborate and connect to the family in Riverside. So this is that other type of collaboration, right? Involving treatment, 
involving family in treatment planning and and um, support, uh, providing social support. Um, but at the same time thinking when he's done with our program in LA County, they want to him to be moving back to Riverside County. So we need to already anticipate and plan and develop a connection over there. Um, in his case, we also needed support for AAPI um, for legal services because of his immigration status. So again, later on, Yvonne's gonna be sharing with you a list of resources that we compiled, um, uh, all of us. Um, and we wanna call your attention to the fact that there are AAPI legal services in LA County. We encourage you to access those resources to ensure that your client, your client has, your clients have access to the appropriate service that they need, that we, as big as SSG is, we don't have that capability. We don't have the legal services. And in his case, it was quite simple in that he had his ID. We've had individuals who came to us from the street who have lost their ID. And we have to, and you know, if I have somebody who's born in Kentucky and we have clients in our programs who do that, who, you know, don't have ID, but we can contact the office in Kentucky or Alabama and get their, their um, certificate. But for immigrant individuals who have lost all of their paperwork, it's a very, it really, we're talking about starting from zero. So our staff have had to use like the Freedom of Information Act um, in order to contact immigration service to find a way to get their a copy of their green card or a copy of their social security in order to be able to start all over with the DMV and the ID. So for, so for legal and immigrant services, it's not just a visa. It sometimes starts as something as basic as an ID, okay? And the last thought is discharge planning. So we talked about referral service. And when planning discharge, I want to encourage all of us to think about the need to be comprehensive. Um, we've had a lot of clients who have to move out of county, who have to move out of state to reunite with their family. And, and it's, it's the, these kinds of situations. We want to do what Glenn talked about, the warm hands off, right? It's not just the warm hands off to another service provider. It's also with to the ethnic community or to the family or the extended family that may be of support for this individual. So for our API, AAPI community, we um, really um, encourage you to think in terms of the whole length of treatment, um, but also don't forget that discharge planning and thorough comprehensive connection is just as important to ensure that people continue to be successful and that we don't set them up to fail uh, once they leave our program. Okay, I think that's my part. Over to Yvonne. Welcome everyone. And uh, thank you for spending your afternoon with us today. Um, I really appreciate presenting with my two colleagues and they really set up a great foundation for my portion of the presentation, which will focus on older adults. My name is Yvonne and I'm the division director of SSG Silver. Um, as Trang mentioned, SSG is a nonprofit organization where um, we have multiple divisions. 
within our organization, silver is the division within um, as a street that focuses primarily on working with older adults. Unlike other divisions at um, SSG that does work in behavioral health, um, Silver actually has 50% uh, of our programming focuses on health-related issues uh, that impacts older adults and addresses social determinants of health. And we also have a rather robust program that focuses on working with family caregivers. Um, our division was developed in 1999, and it was initially developed as a collaboration. Um, and it came out of APCON, Asian Pacific Policy Planning Council, which is now known as AAPI Equity Alliance. The premise of developing this program at that time was the understanding that not one organization could meet the needs of all AAPI older adults, but at the same time, the community at large had a difficult time really understanding the diversity within the AAPI community and providing appropriate referrals to the various CBOs. Um, also, there was funding challenges where a lot of the data that funders had was disaggregated. So the needs of AAPI older adults were really underestimated. So as a group, um, we applied together to receive funding um, and one way to be more competitive in receiving services and advocating for care for our community, but also creating a network or a hub, so to speak, so that the community at large would be able to refer to us as one entity. So there would be no wrong door entry point. And as a network, when we receive the referrals, we will then be able to, within our collaboration, identify um, the providers or sometimes even worked together to better serve the individual that was referred to us. Um, as a result of developing that collaboration, we also at the same time developed an older adult committee under AAPI Equity Alliance, which is still in existence today. Um, and I co-chair that committee. Um, and the real the mission of the committee really is to continue to have ongoing conversations about the needs of AAPI older adults, um, continue to advocate for the group and develop programming that would be appropriate in serving that community. Um, my colleagues talked a lot today about children and also the adult population. So today I'm going to talk more about the older adult population and how we've worked with them. Uh, a little bit about myself and my interest in working with older adults. I grew up um, with my grandmother in our home um, and she stayed with us as long as I could remember um, until the time that I had left for college. Um, and through my experience with her, I learned a lot about um, the value of older adults within our community, but also as she aged, I was able to witness the challenges that she faced as an immigrant um, in terms of seeking, accessing, utilizing, understanding healthcare. Um, I subsequently, when she became older, became her primary caregiver. 
And even as a social worker um, in practice, I personally faced many challenges advocating for her to receive culturally appropriate care. Um, at the same time, within my family system, I witnessed my parents um, and also my aunts and uncles and how they struggled um, in terms of the integration of their own cultural beliefs and how they should be caring for their elderly parent and how they access and utilize services. And through those experiences, I became really involved in working with older adults. Um, because of the age group that we work with, um, I do take a very anthropological perspective in the work that I do with older adults. Um, I think that this perspective is helpful in helping us see each person as an individual with their own different histories, experience, interpretation of cultural beliefs and values, and how that all of that is incorporated together in um, how they seek access and utilize services and also the dynamics within their family system. Um, very early on, and you'll see in my resource list later, um, I came across this book um, called The Spirit Catches You When You Fall Down. And it isn't really a book, book about social services per se, but it really resonated with me in terms of how the community came together and really um, learned about the history and the cultural beliefs of the specific family as a way of um, assisting them and bringing them into care. So I, I highly recommend uh, reading that particular book. Um, today, like Trang and Glenn, I'm going to be um, using a case example to illustrate how we work with our older adults in coordination of care. Um, and one of the tools that we use a lot in working with older adults is the genogram to help map who is within this individual system and who are our partners in care. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about whole person care, which I believe is in the center of working with older adults um, and not overlooking other factors that impact their overall well-being. Um, Glenn spoke a little bit about multi-generational households and very levels of acculturation, language. And you know, I really appreciate him laying the foundation for that because that also um, comes into play quite a bit when working with our older adult clients. I'm gonna talk a little bit about AAPI hate um, and all of the incidents during COVID-19 and the impact of that on our older adults. And then uh, Tran mentioned that I have a list of resources um, for CBOs that we work with. So in working with um, our older adults, I like to use the term working with the village. Um, and the reason I use that term is I like to kind of take us away from the way that we tend to interpret people's network. And, and within Los Angeles, the metropolitan area, I think a lot of times when we think about our partners in care, we think about the formal structures that are in place 
our hospitals, our legal system, our mental health system, our health system, and our education system. A lot of times I find when we work with our older adults from our immigrant communities, we're looking a lot at the informal systems that are in place. Sometimes um, from prior to their immigration, um, a lot of the older adults that we work with and their community network consist of individuals who are community leaders and had high social status um, back home where they immigrated from. Um, however, when they arrived here in this country, perhaps on a professional level, they did not retain that particular status, um, but within the community that they live. Um, and in this case example, I'll be talking about Long Beach and the Cambodian community. Um, they hold certain status that is um, informal, but um, very relevant in our work. And in, in some ways it is the community that we need to focus on when working with our clients. Um, so this particular client that I want to talk about is actually someone that I encounter really early on. And this is the beginning stages of us developing full service partnership, um, the beginning of MHSA and the beginning of some conversations about really culturally specific um, mental health services. And I think the first time there was age specific and culturally specific pro programming. So we were in some ways building the plane while we were flying it. Um, and so this client uh, was brought to my attention by our community partner, Cambodian Association of America, and they actually um, were working with us on various other programming that um, we had under our aging services network. And they had just become our partner um, within this DMH contract. Um, this, this woman um, was experiencing ongoing psychotic symptoms and she had multiple encounters with Department of Mental Health. Um, prior to that, um, the reason DMH became involved with this family was that she had two minor children um, who were in um, the Long Beach school system. They were having some challenges um, at school, um, DCFS became involved um, upon the home assessment. Um, the DCF worker called APS, who then subsequently called the PMRT team from DMH, which is Genesis. Um, and they had gone out um, and actually hospitalized this particular client for danger to other. Um, she was um, cutting um, all of the furniture within her home. She was attacking her uh, minor children, adult children, and her husband with scissors and all sharp objects in her home. And all the cabinets in the home had, um, had padlocks on them to prevent her from endangering herself or her family member. The husband, um, after this hospitalization, saw the despair in her and did not wish for her to um, be hospitalized again, but at the same time also lost trust in the public mental health system. 
Um, but he was very concerned about his minor children. He had been referred for parenting classes um, at CAA and at the same time was enrolled in our family caregiver support program um, through our aging services network. Uh, the case manager that began working with him um, was really considered a community leader uh, within the Cambodian community. Um, he, when we started the full service partnership program uh, in an attempt to really understand and outreach to the community, um, I did a lot of ride-alongs with him within the community. And I think this is where I say that people hold different social status within the community sometimes than what's on their business card. Um, because he is really recognized within his community every corner that we go um, when we drive around Long Beach. So he approached me and he said, I have someone that I think needs FSP, but we need to uh, approach this family differently. You cannot go into their home and talk about um, mental health services, medication or hospitalization. So I said to him, okay, you know, I will take your lead. And at that time, we did not actually have um, a, a clinician, a Khmer-speaking clinician on our team. Um, we were still in the recruitment stage. So um, I said to him, you will be my teacher and I will follow your lead. Um, this is someone that I consider and many of the clients that we work with on various communities and different clients our cultural broker. Um, he brought me to the home and um, he demonstrated for me the proper greeting, the proper way of engaging with this family and becoming part of their network. Um, through the initial conversations with this um, older woman, we learned that her interpretation of her problem and the reason that she refused traditional mental health services is because she felt that no one was listening to her. No one accepted her interpretation of the problem and what she believed was going to be the answer to her problem. In her mind, um, many years ago, when her eldest daughter was of marrying age, she opposed the young man that her daughter wanted to marry. And instead she um, forced her daughter into an arranged marriage. As a result of that refusal, the young man that um, was in a relationship with her daughter committed suicide. During the marriage, um, to this man that she had arranged, there was a lot of domestic violence. And her daughter developed PTSD. The marriage ended and began to develop severe psychotic symptoms. On the day that her daughter married the man that she had um, agreed her to marry to, the Buddha statue in their home fell off its pedestal and broke its head. Her husband 
disposed of the statue by digging a hole in their yard and burying the Buddha statue in their yard. Her belief is that the young man that had committed suicide put a hex in her home. And because the statue was disposed improperly, she felt like the hexes caused her daughter to have a poor marriage, suffer abuse, and then also psychotic symptoms. She also began to have psychotic symptoms of her own where she was hearing voices and seeing shadows in her yard. Her belief in terms of the solution to her problem was that she needed a spiritual blessing and she also needed a 50 pound bag of rice. She felt that it was the thing to do to spread rice in her yard um, to feed the evil spirits. But each time she told that story to a mental health professional, they decided that that was part of her mental illness and they wanted to prescribe her more medication. She became more despaired. When we entered her home, her daughter with the behavioral health issues was on a mattress in the living room. Her husband had another mattress. They had disposed of all of their furniture. He was in another mattress um, that blocked the door between the front half of the house and the back half of the house. And the client lived in the back of the house with her two minor children. The reason that they had the sleeping arrangement was that when both mom and daughter disagreed about the source of their problem, mom would become aggressive and look for sharp objects. So the dad felt that the only way for him to prevent discord was to sleep between the two of them. And you can imagine the impact of that on his overall mental health and physical health. Um, so we went back to DMH, um, who was our funder at the time, and we had flex funding from Full Service Partnership. And with our API-focused program, this is where I said that we were flying the plane while we were building it. We had some robust discussions about, well, what is the appropriate way of using this funding? The father disagreed on using any more of his resources to pay for rice. Um, he was recycling cans to help support his family, which had two dis disabled individuals. Um, and he did not believe that buying her rice to spread in their yard or having a blessing ceremony was a good way for him to use his time. So we had a discussion with DMH about taking on a non-traditional approach to working with this client and her family. Um, earlier, I talked a little bit about um, genogram and mapping out relationships within the family. So we proceeded also with developing um, networks an outline of what each individual with this family, within this family, considered to be their network and their support, which is very different for each individual family member. 
The two minor children spoke primarily English. Their connection with the community is very limited. Um, and they do not ascribe to a lot of the beliefs that the parents had. Um, the older daughter who had um, herself some behavioral health needs was somewhere in between. Um, so when we approached this family and we had conversations with the mom, we had a lot of discussions with her about what is the outcome that she was seeking if we were to follow her idea of what, um, what the solution would be for her family. And at the end of the day, she wanted her children to be well. And she believed that her daughter would become better if she could have this blessing ceremony and spread the rice and have a proper disposal of this Buddha statue. Um, this is when we approached the local spiritual leader who also professionally um, is a liquor store owner um, in Long Beach. But without my cultural broker, we wouldn't have um, been aware of this relationship and this individual uh, within the community. So we drove up to the liquor store one day and had a conversation with a spiritual leader um, and he came over to the home. Um, next, the client was brought to the temple in Long Beach um, and she had a conversation with the head monk and they proceeded to come to her home and they dug up the Buddha in her yard and had a blessing ceremony. With DMH funding, we also purchased her 50 pound bag of rice. And we went um, to her yard, myself, um, our cultural broker and her whole family proceeded to spread rice um, in her yard. And I, I, I could still remember back then thinking about how am I going to write this up in, as a progress note um, for DMH. But um, after we did all that, the client said to us, I appreciate you taking my approach and any recommendations you have for me moving forward, I will listen. So I remember about three weeks after we did the ceremony and we spread the rice, I received a call from our community partner that said, uh, we need to head over to the house, there's an emergency. So after the blessing ceremony, the husband decided to take the padlocks off the kitchen cabinet. And um, the client woke up in the morning and began hearing voices and she was in great despair. Um, she felt hopeless. She felt that everything that she had believed in and had done did not work. Um, we went out to the home, she was holding a knife um, and she was about to take her own life. We called um, PMRT, they came out with the ambulance. I remember sitting in the back of the ambulance and having a conversation with her with our interpreter um, and she was really in despair at that time. And we said to her, 
We've tried it your way. Are you willing to try it our way now? Um, and she said, okay. And you can see a glimmer of light in her eyes at that moment. Um, I will say that she then proceeded to meet with her psychiatrist um, and was able to get on medication as a result of her accepting treatment. Her daughter then agreed to meet with a clinician from our Alliance team um, and then proceeded to receive services from SSG's APCTC program in Long Beach. Um, the younger, two younger children then enrolled in a youth program through Cambodian Association of America and the family was able to complete their program through CAA's Family Preservation Program. So I really hope that, you know, using this case, um, we're able to illustrate the different ways that, um, different tools that we incorporated in working with the client and the family. So um, this is a slide that I just wanted to put up because um, I find it really important in recent days, you know, I hear a lot of conversations about whole person care, but you know, really in working with older adults for the last 20 some years, um, this has been our approach um, in working with this population. And with every single client that we encounter, looking at that cognitive and physical health and how it's impacting their overall presentation in terms of their behavioral health has been um, extremely important. So I just wanted to put that up as well. Um, and the other thing is uh, the social determinants of health. In the early 2000s, Silver had um, a grant funding from the CDC. Um, it was called the REACH 2010 Racial and Ethic Approaches to Community Health. And the focus of that program was to address various social determinants that impacted that community and their overall ability to access and utilize healthcare. Since we have had that program, and that was from 2003 to 2012, um, looking through the lens of social determinants and really, you know, with us having almost 50% of our programming focused on social determinants of health. We also take this lens when we look at our behavioral health clients and the work that we are doing with them. And so now I, I want to kind of segue into a little discussion about um, the anti-AAPI hate incidents that has occurred since COVID-19. And I do feel like this had some relevance to the social determinants of health um, and the discussion around that. Um, I recall very early on in the pandemic, um, a colleague of mine called me and said, I'm in the emergency room right now because my son was beaten for over 20 minutes at his middle school campus after another student called him a racial slur, called him a coronavirus carrier because he was Asian. 
proceeded to follow him around the school campus and beat him up in three different locations while the school officials watch. As a member of AAPI Equity Alliance, um, I reached out to our group who had actually up and at that point really focused our efforts primarily on addressing health and human services needs. Um, we had a discussion at that time about what our role would be in this and the impact of these type of incidents on our community's ability to access, utilize services that they need. Um, so at that time, we launched um, Stop AAPI Hate and also participated in the LA versus Hate effort. The anti-Asian hate incidences have disproportionately impacted AAPI older adults. As many of the initial cases targeted older adults uh, within the AAPI community, they happened in um, AAPI predominant communities in front of, in public settings, in front of many bystanders. Because of the pandemic and other social issues, people stand by and watched, and there was no intervention. The result of those incidences have negatively impact the AAPI community in terms of how they have their willingness to participate in services. Um, and although there is a great deal of increase, in behavioral health needs. Um, we're seeing an increase in isolation, uh, partially due to the older adults having an increased vulnerability um, to COVID-19, but at the same time, an increased isolation due to the fear uh, that surrounds um, the hate incidents. So I do wanna share here uh, some of the resources that are available because we really want to empower our community in addressing these hate incidences and be aware of the resources that are available. So through LA versus hate, um, people can call the 211 hotline and share um, their incident and their needs incidences that are related to AAPI hate, anti-AAPI hate incidents will be directed to SSG um, and various behavioral health providers within our organization or our network will respond to those things. I also, later on in the resources, I have listed the website for Stop AAPI Hate, which is a national registry um, that documents and track hate incidences and that informs policy. Um, since the beginning of the pandemic, over 9,000 cases of hate incidents have been reported, but we know that it is an underreporting. So we continue to ask individuals to spread the word so that people will report their experience and also hopefully as a result, 
be able to receive assistance that they need. The other group that is very much involved in this effort is um, Asian American Advancing Justice. They're not listed here, but they are in my resource list later on. Um, they have been doing a number of bystander trainings to help other individuals learn how to assist an individual who is the victim of a hate incident while it's happening. So I hope that all of those resources you will find helpful. So here's my list. Um, it is by no means an exhaustive list. I did not um, want to go ahead and list all 40 some organizations that's under the AAPI Equity Alliance, but you're welcome to go to their page and learn about the various partners and members. Um, the ones that I've listed here are those that we have worked with um, relatively frequently in our work in behavioral health. And on the bottom of my resource list is um, the title of the book that I mentioned about earlier. Um, and I really encourage you to um, look it up. That, that ends my presentation. Okay. Thank you everyone for sticking with us. <laughs> so we hope that we've given you a glimpse of our work, our daily, and some of the nuances. We hope you used uh, the resources we give you because this is also an opportunity for us to introduce you to a lot of community-based partners and other resources in the, in the AAPI communities in LA County. And because of our, the nature of our work, we come into contact with and collaborate all the time with these partners. But for those of you who are not part of the network, um, you know, it's helpful for you to have this list and we encourage you to utilize um, as much as you can in order to make sure your clients who are AAPI will have access to what they need. Glenn, other thoughts? No, I um, thank you for the time, everybody. I, I do sometimes feel like because we have such a small knit community of service providers for our API consumers that I often feel like we're preaching to the choir in a lot of ways. So I hope mm -hmm. that the information was at, at least useful review. Um, the other side of it is um, if you have other thoughts about not just topic areas, but format, um, as I was sitting here listening and also some of the questions that did come forward and from other private chats I've been seeing, um, I think this is an excellent place as a forum that we may be able to do what we used to do years ago, which were grand round case conference presentations that involved a treatment team as well as allied professionals that were involved in the treatment process and to do a formal case conference. I, I miss those days when we would sit there. It, it usually only happens at conventions and conferences, but if it was done more on, on an accessible basis, I know we're doing a lot of that with substance use disorders mm -hmm. at this time for regular you know, weekly consultations. I'd like to see if that would happen, but that request has to come from the uh, practitioners themselves. So I, you know, I just really always appreciate the opportunity to talk about older adults um, and their unique um, needs that they have. I think a lot of times this population or age group gets overlooked because 
they're closer to the end of their life and there's this overall impression that there isn't any hope for them to recover and live a more meaningful life. So it's always a good opportunity for me to hopefully change that perspective, that kind of general belief that people have um, in our society. Um, the old adage that you can't teach an old dog new tricks or you know, older adults are not able to change. Um, through our work, we have some claims that are centurions and even with that age group, we are seeing a lot of progress. And I think even um, just allowing them uh, even a very short period of time in their life to be able to live with meaningful purpose, with dignity, and also the ability to engage in relationships with their family and their network, I think is very rewarding. And I hope that more people will participate in doing that. And don't forget, in the old days, 60 years older adult, but for those of us who are gonna live to be 95, you know, it's another 35 years of quality of life that in terms of behavioral health, we have to kind of help folks to manage, yeah?